the markets. We just can't get enough of them. Markets are the drivers of your wealth and investment strategy. Welcome to Magic Markets. I'm your host, The Finance Ghost. I am Mohammed Nala of MoKnows.com. Mo is one of the most respected macro analysts to come out of South Africa. He is now in Canada, so we get his global perspective layered on top of emerging markets expertise. Together, we will unpack the biggest trends and issues and scratch beneath the surface to bring you our insights and share our love and passion for markets and investments. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not financial or investment advice. Please speak to your personal financial advisor. Welcome to Magic Markets. Welcome to episode 49 of Magic Markets. And this definitely has to go down as our most international show. I think uh, we're going to be talking about stuff like ESG and climate change and global warming, I suppose. And we certainly covered the full globe here. So we have Mo sitting in Canada and then we have Kate McKenzie and she's all the way in Australia. So it's very late at night for her. It's very early in the morning for Mo and I've sent Baby Ghost on a walk with the nanny so we can make this work. And welcome to Magic Markets and I think it's going to be a, a really good show. Mo, let's say hello to you first and then we can welcome Kate. Hi, Ghost. Always a pleasure co-hosting this with you. And uh, just super proud and glad to have Kate online. You know, Kate and I have uh, have, uh, dealt with one another in the past and we've become friends, I'd like to think. And it's really great to bring these international voices onto Magic Markets. It's really what we've committed to our listeners. The show is is growing in terms of its international audience, not just its South African audience. And so not just a truly international show. We've done international shows before. But I think the time zone dispersion, this is definitely the most dispersed show we've had. So, yeah, I'm I'm not going to steal your thunder, Ghost. I want you to introduce our super exciting guest, Kate, to our listeners today and maybe give them the the running order of what we're going to be talking them through. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'll just fanboy out here for a second. It was the first time I met a contributing columnist to Bloomberg. So, Mo, I always thought I was your coolest friend and then we met Kate. But um, it's fine. I'll drop into I'll drop into P two. It's not the end of the world. So, Kate, I mean, you're a you're a consultant and a writer in the in the intersection of finance and, and climate change. At the end of the day, which is something that is becoming exceptionally topical, is exceptionally topical, you know, across the world, really. As I mentioned, a contributing columnist to Bloomberg, which is you know pretty cool. Let's be honest. And uh, we're really just excited to to tap into your knowledge here and get some global perspectives on this. We've done an ESG show before, and it's something I always try to learn more about I think it's something that everyone needs to learn more about and and as ever on magic markets we go for a a bit of a balanced view and an opportunity to impart some knowledge so Kate thank you for making time for being here with us today thank you so much um both of you that was yeah really nice intro and yeah great to be here and I'm proud of all of us for managing our very different time zones Kate, that's fantastic. I mean, as as Ghost has indicated, we've kind of touched on climate change on magic markets in the past, but I think it's it's not just important to solidify some of the concepts for, for our listeners. It's also important to build some of those out simply because the game is changing. A lot of our listeners even if they're just following conventional media, even if they're not watching financial media, they will see this increasing emphasis on green, on climate change. And, and let's be honest, I mean, I've, I've really banged on this drum very hard because for me, it's the big existential risk. It's how can you ignore this? You know, how can you go about your, your day, your world in markets without taking these considerations into account? Now, why is this topical? Why are we talking to you right now? Is that we're all heading into COP 
26. I remember when this was still COP20, so I'm giving some of my age away a little bit. But this is COP26 in Glasgow uh, where world leaders are going to be meeting. And again, it's time to have a look at how do we operationalize some of the aspects that have been hanging around for the longest time. I mean, we had the Paris Accord and there were maybe some gains there. And then it kind of goes sideways. We had an administration in the United States that wasn't really signed up to that. And now maybe it's time for the world to be getting back on track. Let's say, you know, what is the status quo? Uh, We're going into COP26. There's a lot of talk around net zero. Companies are starting to fixate on this down in South Africa and increasingly internationally, we see that, you know, finance flows are starting to increasingly be tied towards these themes. So maybe let's kick off there, Kate. Give us a quick overview. How are you seeing the world uh, as we head into COP26? Yeah, look, there's a lot there and a lot has happened since um, since the Paris Agreement was struck at uh, the end of 2015. And yeah, as you said, Mo, we've gone through quite an interesting period where not that long after the agreement was signed, obviously, we had the change of administration in the US and that looked like being a real blow for global climate ambition. The Paris Agreement was really important in so many ways that are so hard to explain to people that are not following like international climate action. I guess one of the main points to make about it is that for the first time, every country in the world agreed to cut their emissions and to pursue a you know reasonably ambitious limit of well below two degrees of warming and more than that to pursue a 1.5 degree limit. But one of the really critical things that you um, touched on with net zero was that um, there was a reference in the agreement to reaching a balance between um, carbon sinks and carbon sources. So the reason that climate change has become such a big issue in finance over the last few years, I guess largely since the Paris Agreement was signed, one is that there's been a financial risk identified or a few different sorts of financial risks identified that relate to climate change. So 10 years ago, it was very hard to make the argument that climate change was at all salient or relevant to anyone in finance. These days, quite a lot of really clever analytical work was done connecting um, what's called the carbon budget to the financially accounted reserves of fossil fuels that are sitting on the books of companies, both commercial and state-owned companies around the world. But the carbon budget essentially is a, a scientific concept and it refers to how much more carbon we can emit by burning fossil fuels um, and other things like land use change and so forth before we hit those warming limits where stuff gets really dangerous and really serious. It's possible scientifically to estimate how much more we've got left to burn before we get to the next threshold, 1.5, and then, you know, towards 2, where things get even more dire. So that was a really critical piece of analysis. I think after Paris, that really crystallised that risk. At the same time, we've also seen the impacts of climate change itself, obviously accelerating and, and worsening, and that's become more and more obvious. Yeah, I think that's that's super interesting. And I mean, it's always so difficult. You know, before I even hand over to Ghost, I want to just touch on a couple of key points in terms of the financing aspect of it. I mean, like you say, Paris solidified a lot of stuff. It's, it's, it's the big names, right? So we're talking... Kyoto. There was Kyoto, then there's Paris. And I think Glasgow is trying to solidify its name in that space simply because things have come towards a head. This is the opportunity to get everyone back on track. But when we tie this back to markets, when we tie this back to financing, I mean, increasingly, I'm a CFA charter holder, and I can tell you that the CFA Institute now has an ESG 
module or a course that you can do and get specially accredited in. So it's gathering enough space, not just in the analytical space, but also in the practical space. And what I mean when I say that, again, South African listeners will be familiar with the fact that I think almost all of the banks, if not most of the banks down in South Africa, have now agreed to not finance coal projects. They were maybe a little bit slower than some of the international peers, but this has ramifications. It has ramifications because it means those companies, they've been assessed to be vulnerable. Their access to that finance will dry up over a certain period of time, and that will have ramifications for investors in those stocks. I mean, we spoke about things like Tungela down in South Africa not too not too long ago. So that is something to keep an eye on. But there's the other side of it. There's the more proactive side of it, I guess, which I call it proactive. I still think it's been a little bit too slow, which has been global asset managers and pension funds that are starting to really incorporate impact investing, the environment into their investment processes. I mean, we know the empirical research is there to show that doing right by the environment will result in greater returns over the longer period of time. And those returns are not just financial. And that's what I want to just make sure resonates with our listeners as well, is that this is not about just a financial return. Yes, there is a financial return, but this is about sustainability of the businesses you're investing in over the long term. And so if you wear any kind of long-term investing mindset, this becomes critically important to how you view your own investment strategy and how those in the ecosystem around you are viewing that strategy. Because there's an aspect of herd behavior, absolutely. But remember, it's still a powerful aspect. And their strength in numbers. So as we see this building a little bit of momentum, remember it's going to have some sort of financial impact at the tail end. Ghost, I want to hand over to you here to bring you into the conversation. You know, do you want to maybe pick up on some of those points? And I know you had a couple of points we were discussing offline that are maybe worth bringing into the debate as well. Thanks, Mo. So as the one who still lives in an emerging market, it's interesting. I mean, I get to see it on the ground. And I mean, Mo, it wasn't that long. You were in South Africa, Kate. I don't know if you've lived in, in Oz your whole life. But we have this situation in, I think, emerging markets where there is still this massive reliance on, on fossil fuels. What I wanted to ask is it feels like there's almost a disconnect between, you know, the Gretas of this world shouting in Europe and then people on the ground in emerging markets who are actually just trying to feed their families. And if their electricity price goes up by 25%, you know, that is literally the difference between having lights on or off. So what we've seen, and I'm glad you raised Tungela, Mo, is, you know, we've seen a situation where coal prices have spiked and there's, you know, various reasons for that. I guess the point is, do we need to think about it as a transition? And this net zero concept is is really interesting. You know, the idea is like, okay, we've caused damage. Let's stop causing the damage. And then, you know, at least that's something. But is there a transition period where we say, look, we need, to, you know, South Africa can't turn off fossil fuels tomorrow. It's not possible. We'd all love to get to renewables. But Kate, I don't know how much you follow our political stories. I mean, we struggle to fix potholes around here, let alone actually sort out our electrical grid. You know, and we have a minister who, who, who's very keen to protect ESCOM. There's a lot of political stuff going on. I can't speak for other emerging markets, but I'm guessing it's not that different because a lot of these places are, are cut from the same cloth. So I wanted to ask how you think about, you know, ESG's got three letters and there's an S there as well. And how do we balance the long-term environmental impact versus the price of energy for poor families in winter this year? You know, how do you, how do you think about that? In a way... It's become a bit easier because the cost of generating electricity from renewables has fallen so fast. So in a sense, that trade-off, is it's not really the issue anymore because, you know, generating electricity from renewable energy is now cheaper. In, in, in many cases and places, it's cheaper to build new renewable energy 
than to run an existing coal-fired power plant. Of course, that's not necessarily the case everywhere right now because if you are South Africa, um, obviously you've got you've got a lot of domestic mines, uh, coal mines, and a big you know coal power plant infrastructure there as well. So you've got a lot of sunk costs. There are a few other places around the world where that's still the case. China, where you know that there's still coal is still accessible cheaply. Yeah, a lot of it comes down to you know proximity to coal mines and so forth. One, one thing is that even in those cases, once you start factoring in the costs of maintenance of the plants and so forth, as you would know well, both of you with, with ESCOM, that can become, you know, there, there are other costs associated with running these plants, especially when they get older, um, other than the fuel costs. Um, and when they're factored in, that can make it, you know, quite, quite a bit different, especially if you then start looking at, you know, externalities and decommissioning costs, health costs, things like that. That doesn't necessarily, you know, help solve the conundrum, though, of what to do right now for countries that, you know, have high emissions, have limited access to financing to transition, which is obviously the case for some emerging market countries. And, and it's definitely an issue in South Africa, which is, you know, the, the subject of a lot of discussion. In those situations, yeah, I think one thing to be aware of is that in the international landscape of climate diplomacy, that pressure is understood and it is built into the architecture of the Paris Agreement, which is what's sort of continuing through Glasgow and beyond, in that developing nations have different requirements, different sort of uh, different levels of expectations put on them depending on you know there's concepts like common but differentiated responsibilities there's also concepts of which countries are historically responsible for for burning emissions and it's obviously the wealthier countries bear the most responsibility for the cumulative effect the cumulative you know co2 emissions but getting back to finance and ems it's yeah look it's a tricky one cost of finance and access to finance um and and just the sort of availability and range and type of finance is is all of these things are just so much more difficult in countries that cannot just issue really really cheap government bonds to fund you know massive infrastructure should they wish to should they have the political will to do so it's a look it's a tough one there is a lot of a lot of the international sort of financial community the ifis the imf and world bank and mdbs are looking you know would say that they're very very preoccupied with this Um, and to an extent the international community the g20 talks about this it's definitely not enough has been done. I would say there's there's a real gap between what you know what the the wealthier countries and you know the wealthier kind of asset owners of the world as well and asset managers of the world are, are doing to kind of walk the talk in terms of helping developing countries to be able to access finance to be able to make those transitions in a way that protects people. So it's it's a really big it's a tough one. It's a difficult question to answer because no one quite knows. I think that's the point. And we all we're all still figuring it out, especially at public sector level. What's interesting to see is that in the private sector where obviously the decisions are are made faster and inevitably with the right intentions, I'm seeing a lot more in the way of ESG-linked finance is starting to get picked up by South African corporates, especially when they're more like internationally headquartered. I think Mondi's done something. I saw MediClinic. You know, you read the announcement and then they talk about it's, you know, it's about waste and everything. And then it starts to feel a little bit like clutching at straw. So for MediClinic, for example, one of the things talked about on the social angle was that they treat their, you know, their patients well. I'm like, that's got nothing to do with ESG. That's your business. You know, that's, that's, a, that's something you need to be doing in order for people to come to your hospitals. It's got nothing to do with ESG. So obviously what we're going to start yeah. seeing, because again, the intersection of finance and climate change and everything else is money drives behavior. And we can pretend that that's not the case. But on a macro level for humanity, money drives behavior. There's only a tiny slice of people who are willing to act in a way that isn't directly driven by money. So 
if more corporates are going to be committing to this stuff and have ESG linked finance, which I think is quite smart for what it's worth, then we're going to see a lot more corporates try and justify, no, we'll reach our ESG targets because, you know, we don't hit our clients when they walk in the door. So therefore we're great on S and no one's stolen money last year. So that's a big win on G. I'm being facetious, obviously, but unfortunately I am naturally <laughs> cynical and I see a lot of this behavior coming through the system. But on the plus side, it does show that this stuff is starting to happen, you know, and I think from my side, not knowing that much about this space, it does make sense that emerging markets do need to be given slightly different treatments to, as you say, the countries that actually burnt all the stuff, made all the money in the process, and now are sitting in a position where, you know, they don't have people who necessarily can't afford electricity, you know, to shout from their lofty heights and ivory towers. So if there's funding that comes back into emerging markets, whether it's green bonds or whatever it is, ESG-linked loans, stuff that drives the right behavior, that kind of starts to make up for it, which starts to become a sensible system, I think, and creates an ecosystem where we can, we can actually move forward with this stuff. Yeah, I think, yes. Yeah, I, I think like when you mentioned, you know, sort of like keeping your customers happy or your, you know, your staff or sort of not, there's no transgressions from staff. I think that that's a really interesting point where, because ESG, you know, the, the E is environment, S is social, G is governance, um, just in case any, um, anyone's... Uh, wondering governance I, I think it's a point that's often made is that you know governance is is incredibly broad and often these are fairly core corporate you know requirements or, or, or sort of qualities right often so the, the correlation with the, the sort of the G and ESG to company performance is is usually very high and it can be you know a lot easier I guess to find that sort of alignment there between financial performance and 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 you know the G for various reasons and not not necessary causation just just correlation you know the E and the S are sort of different harder to quantify and less traditionally aligned with corporate reporting and financial reporting metrics your point about the availability of ESG finance driving like better behavior from, from companies and, and so forth is really, it's really interesting point. And I think broadly, it's obviously broadly a good thing. It can be problematic when it's at the sovereign level. Um, for example, when you start sort of, when you start sort of skipping from, I guess, private finance over to public finance, and, and again, you know, sort of going back to developing countries and EMs, it, it then becomes a bit more of a sensitive conversation sometimes around, you know, conditionality and what is, you know, who's dictating the terms of what's green and, you know, who's sort of, coming up with you know what policies a, a sovereign government should be should be putting in place you know one thing that gets a lot of coverage is the the issuance of green bonds which is just huge and you know there's a lot of I'd say good-natured disagreement about you know how much that drives your issuer behavior in, in 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 the case of sovereigns a word that comes up a lot in the climate world or the intersection of climate finance is additionality you know is it really leading to something happening that wouldn't have happened before so something just as a final point that struck me i saw it as an advert the other day and it was one of the big local fund managers in south africa and it said something like what if your retirement savings grew a conscience and my immediate reaction is well didn't they have a conscience before were they just investing in you know whatever's going really. And the point is everything is about ESG, 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 ESG. Now everything is ESG. And I mean, we've done a show before um, with an asset manager. I mean, he, he's putting together the product that works, right? He's doing his job. But when I see an ESG index mm. that has stuff like Sassol in it or British American tobacco, you know, you just go like, what, what standard <laughs> of ESG is this? But anyway, so, you know, yeah, I think the world's got a long way to go with this stuff, but there's, there's a lot of opportunistic marketing around those three letters at the moment. And I think that's where people yeah, probably absolutely. need to just be a little bit careful. You've touched on 
emerging markets versus developed markets and how it's almost as though, you know, DMs need to do their bit because of their contribution to, to cumulative carbon, right? And, and I fully get that. There's also the aspect of crowding in private investment. And I would almost see those as related concepts. You know, I would see developed markets crowding in kind of investment from emerging markets. But then going to your points of additionality and conditionality, you know, I think that's those are very important aspects, not just when we're looking at the corporate world, but also at the sovereign world. I know that there's a lot of political pushback against conditionality. But again, if we tie the issues of environment and governance together, those are absolutely critical. Now, where I want to go with this is that I want to kind of wrap up on, on two components, right? The first one I want to wrap up on is we've discussed the concepts of people just saying they're doing the right things and jumping on the bandwagon. And and let's call it, there's a term out there, if our listeners not familiar with it, it's called greenwashing. And if you go and check out Kate's, you know, entire social media feed and a lot of stuff she's written about, Kate's passionate about this stuff. She's written about it. So I'll point you guys towards that. At the tail end of the show, we'll give you our Twitter handles. We'll give you Kate's Twitter handle as well. And you can go and check this stuff out. But I want to touch on greenwashing very quickly. And then lastly, we can't afford to have this thing kind of fizzle and pop and die out. You know, on this very show, we spoke about shareholder activism and we discussed the whole engine one participating and and pushing ExxonMobil, this big global energy giant towards a more kind of, let's, let's call it a greener path. And they have to do this by forcing their way, getting the proxies on the board. And then that, that was months ago. That was four or five months ago. Now we've heard nothing about it. So those two aspects, can we maybe just touch on your views, greenwashing and then shareholder activism? Is it pop and fizzle? Uh, I think that would be a nice way to just round out the show. Yeah, no, they're really both really, really good topics and, you know, quite connected. So, yeah, greenwashing, I mean, you know, and as, as Ghost was saying before, you know, it's so attractive to be able to get this sort of financing now. Um, in some cases it is, you know, you can get financing on more favourable terms or you can simply, you know, access it in ways that, you know, you previously couldn't. So there's obviously an incentive there to, you know, to, to do that. On the other side, though, you know, the financial service providers are also very incentivised to market their services and products as green, as climate friendly or climate conscious or ESG or sustainable um, you know, there's just um, quite a big demand. I think by some measures, volume of assets that, that come under some kind of ESG type label is going to become bigger than, you know, is going to become the, the, the biggest sort of single category of assets under management in a few years. So there's obviously just, yeah, vast demand, vast incentive to label your, you know, whatever services as, as green. This could be a bit of a problem because you do find funds, um, you do find funds and products with things in them that you would think would not be in there. You know, sometimes there's, there's a kind of a method logical rationale for this like oh you know yeah it's an oil company but it's the best oil company or it's at the better end of oil companies and and you know also there's some people you know there's also arguments that you know you need oil companies to transition i'm not sure if i necessarily agree with that i think that that's a that's you know a whole, a whole other discussion i guess these things tend to go in sort of seasons so i think you know we had like a huge year with the the engine number one um intervention on the exxon board which was you know really amazing and quite a dramatic um situation if you read the the reporting of the actual agm and and how it all went down it was you know it was it was, it was quite intense and there were other other, you know, there were other sort of simultaneous campaigns going on around the Exxon board that, that, and they sort of ended up converging to a degree. So I think we will likely hear more about it next year. And and I think also it's not it's not the only example. I think it's definitely one of the few examples, but it's not the only example we've seen recently of 
that. So I think it's been fascinating to see the intersection of, you know, the, the traditional, you know, activist investor, um, you know, taking taking a stake, you know, wielding wielding a, a strategic stake in a company to, to affect changes at the board or affect strategic changes. That, that, that sort of overlapping with, with sort of climate or, or other, um, other sort of purpose-based shareholder activism. And I, I think we'll see more of it, though. I think, I mean, it's, I've been surprised at how... Yeah, there's definitely it, it. It definitely seems to be something that's gaining gaining momentum. Thanks, Kate. I think I think that's fantastic. I mean, we we unfortunately are running out of time, so I'm just going to say, you know, I think we've touched on a whole bunch of stuff. There's probably a whole bunch of stuff that we could continue talking about, and and maybe it's an idea to try and you know broaden the conversations out. I did promise to share your Twitter handle, so for listeners that want to go and find Kate on Twitter, it's at K Mac, that's K M A C. Uh, you can obviously follow at Finance Ghost and at Mohammed Nala as well if you're not already. But you know, I think go and check out Kate's stuff. She's written a lot. Like we said, she's a, a contributing columnist at Bloomberg Green, a former Financial Times journalist. So really quality stuff that you're getting out there. And we're just proud to have had you on the show to you know bring a diversity of voices and and perspectives onto the show. And I think at the end of the day, just maybe wrapping, and I'll hand over to to Ghost here. We all come at this a different way. You know, we might have have subtle disagreements in terms of do we need the transition? Do we need the oil companies or not? You know, do we need the conditionality and, and additionality clauses in terms of concessional financing? And these are all very big topics. I feel as though, you know, we always commit to scratching beneath the surface, but this topic is so big that I feel as though we've literally just skimmed the surface on this. So again, I'd, I'd encourage our listeners to please engage with us on social media, uh, ask us questions. You know, we're happy to blast those questions across to Kate, blast them across yourself. And if that warrants having another whole show on this you know i certainly think there's enough scope for that i am wary of that simply because managing the three time zones was particularly challenging but kate from my side just thanks a heck of a lot and uh, ghost I'll, I'll leave it to you to wrap the show yeah thanks mo thanks kate just to echo that i mean i think ESG is a developing story. It's going to develop over the next 10 years and everyone's figuring it out. And it's going to be interesting to see. There's going to be some opportunistic stuff along the way. There's going to be a lot of good behavior. There's going to be some bad behavior. And hopefully at the other end of all of this, there's a, a system that is more sustainable without throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And a lot of smart people can hopefully find something in the middle. And I'm glad I don't have that job because it is even harder than finding the time that worked for this recording. Okay, <laughs> thank you. Mo, thank you. And we look forward to recording Magic Markets again next week, Mo. And in the meantime, to our listeners, give us a rating. Let us know what you thought of the show. And uh, we'll chat soon. Remember to visit thefinancegoes.com and monos.com for more detailed insights. This podcast was for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial or investment advice. Please consult your personal financial advisor.